please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapters 27, verses 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, But rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them. After flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God, indeed. Thank you, Marilee, for reading our scripture for us this morning. And again, what a joy it is to be with you all in person. And those of you who are streaming with us, uh, we're grateful for your presence and for the privilege that we have of worshiping together on this fifth Sunday of Lent. We're continuing this series that we started a month ago that we're choosing to call Passion with a reading from Matthew chapter 27. If you've been with us for the last month, you know that we've been focusing on, exclusively focusing on two chapters of Scripture from Matthew's gospel, the first gospel, during these holy days of Lent. I don't have to tell you, if you've been following along, that this particular section is anything but pleasure reading. It's painful material. In fact, it's distressing. Conspiracy, collusion, betrayal, denial, desertion, all of which leads to the unjust death of a righteous man. In Matthew 27, in what Marilee just read for us, it is now Good Friday, though to me there seems to be really nothing good about this particular Friday. Jesus is a marked man. He goes from one trial to another, from high priest now to prefect, from Caiaphas 
to Pilate. The charge, of course, is blasphemy. That is, the action or behavior of someone who is disrespectful of religious practice. It is a form of treason, of claiming to do something or to be something that only God can do and can be. At this point, Jesus' self-identification as Messiah was anathema to the religious professionals. It was blasphemy. In fact, it was an offense that was worthy of death, according to the religious council. Neil Donald Walsh, you may remember that name, wrote a bestseller years ago called Conversations with God, in which he said, and I quote, get this, all great truths begin as blasphemy. Every revolutionary idea that has ever been visited upon the human experience began as an idea that was initially rejected. You need an example? Monotheism didn't play well in a Canaanite polytheistic culture. The incarnation, God in flesh, didn't play well in first century Greco-Roman culture. A Christ, a Messiah hanging on a tree didn't play well in the first century, nor did the Trinity, the Trinitarian concept of God in three persons. The Sanhedrin, the religious council, had no authority in matters of punitive justice, and so they brought this man, they brought their case to Pilate. Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. He served a full decade, which was no small achievement in that day. In fact, his was the second longest tenure of any governor on record in Judea. Judea was a minefield. It was a hotbed, as occupied territories usually are, and indigenous people ruled by foreign troops resulted in constant tension, especially during high and holy days. Pilate, we know, was a former soldier in the Roman guard, not known for his, his sensitivity and diplomacy. Indeed, he was called to task during his tenure by the emperor more than once for intentionally provoking the Jews. Now, to be sure, the empire gave certain liberties to the Jewish people, but the Jews were not allowed to take the law into their own hands. And so Caiaphas and the others delivered, to, delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pilate's primary task, of course, in Judea was what? It was to keep the peace. It was not to get enmeshed or ensnared in religious scruples. It was really to keep the lid on a boiling pot. And yet you know as well as I do that there is a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeepers tend to dodge conflict at any cost. Peacemakers wade right into the thick of it. When Jesus appeared before Pilate at the encouragement of Caiaphas and the others, Pilate had just one question that concerned him. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Now understand that in the first century, the term Messiah was a highly charged political term. 
In fact, in the Jewish psyche, in the Jewish mindset, there was no distinction between religion and politics. It was all the same. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response at this point is rather odd. It's kind of intentionally vague. He said, what does he say? You say so. And I wonder, why so nebulous? Why is Jesus so vague, ambiguous in regard to the governor's question? Well, it would be false for him to say no. And on the other hand, if he says yes, he's confessing to a crime and there's no reason to continue the trial. You say so makes Pilate an unintentional witness to the truth of what he's asking. By the way, this is the last word that Jesus will speak before his dying gasp on the cross. Jesus refuses to speak on his own behalf. Jesus refuses to be his own defense attorney. He is Messiah, of course, but not in the sense that they think. And so Jesus responds in this interrogation in utter and complete silence. Verse 14, merrily that you read, says Pilate was actually stunned by the silence of Jesus. You can understand why. Can you imagine all the cases that this prefect actually heard in the decade that he was a leader. He saw tons of guilty folk constantly pleading, begging, appealing, and the guiltier they are, usually the louder they object. I remember Shakespeare's line from Hamlet, methinks thou dost protest too much. And if you have little children, you know that when denial is overstated, guilt is confirmed. But this man, was blameless. He never said a mumbling word. Have you ever noticed that sometimes our silence actually speaks louder than words? It was Josh Billings who said silence is one of the hardest arguments to be refuted. I think there's an, actually, there's an implicit reference in this text to Isaiah 53 the suffering servant text written seven centuries before this scene ever happened says he was oppressed and afflicted yet he never opened his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth he spoke for others especially those who were poor and marginalized and forsaken, but he would not speak for himself. Silent. By the way, Matthew is also the only writer of the four gospel writers to mention Pilate's wife. Her name, Claudia Procula, who messages her husband in regard to this particular trial have nothing to do with this innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream that I had about him. I think that one line gives us a universal truth. Husbands, listen to your wives. Listen to your spouse. And it's fascinating to me that in John's parallel 
of this story that we've read, Pilate announces to the crowd his desire to release Jesus. He knows he's innocent. And you remember the religious leader's response? If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Now, that's not an idle threat. In other words, what they're saying is, if word gets to Rome that you have released a rival ruler claiming to be king, you're going to be toast. And at this point in the text, the priests are actually out politicking the politicians. You can't have two kings. You can't have two lords. You cannot have two kingdoms. Another interesting thing to me about this text is how everybody in this scene is trying to protect something. You see that? The disciples are protecting themselves. The chief priests are protecting the religious institution. The governor is protecting his political post. Everybody in the story is protecting something except for Jesus. The only blameless one takes the blame. I've often heard, haven't you, that good leaders give the credit and take the blame. More often these days, leaders take the credit and blame and shame the rest, but not Jesus. The only guiltless, blameless, innocent man in this trial takes the blame. And Pilate, at this point, perceiving his innocence, is looking for a loophole. There was a custom during Passover in the first century of releasing a prisoner. It was sort of a conciliatory gesture that was called the Paschal Pardon. There was a convicted felon slated to die on the same day as Jesus. He was a notorious thug. He was known for his exploits. He was a rebel, a zealot, who, according to Luke, was not only guilty of sedition, insurrection, but also of murder. And his name, Barabbas, that's an interesting name. It's a compound name. The prefix bar means son of, Abbas means father, son of the father. What's intriguing to me is that the oldest manuscripts of the gospel also reveal this man's given name. It too was Jesus. There are actually two Jesuses on trial on Good Friday. Now, Pilate, who this is not his first rodeo, thinks that if given a choice between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth, it's a no-brainer. They will choose the Nazarene seven days a week, twice on Sunday, but crowds can be fickle, the mob can be capricious, and the whole scene backfires. When this mob is given a choice between a Jesus with a sword and to Jesus with a towel, they want the sword. And some things never change. The mob always tends to choose vengeance over grace. The crowd always seems to want violence over mercy, conquest over compassion. And besides, who in the world wants a suffering lamb? 
when you can have a conquering rebel. And so it backfires. Give us Barabbas, they cry. And then the question Pilate asked, then what shall I do with Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him, they said. When Pilate seeks for a rationale for crucifixion, what does the crowd do? They just turn up the volume. Volume over substance tends to win the day. Crucify him. And what Pilate does next is a mystery to me. He washes his hands. Now, that's an odd thing for a Roman governor to do because it's a Jewish custom. It's a disclaimer. It's sort of an expression of denial. To wash your hands in a tenuous situation is to say, I am not responsible for what's happening here. He's exonerating himself. This is not my doing. I'm not to blame for this verdict. You see this particular ritual in Deuteronomy 21, where it says there, if a dead body is found and the culprit is unknown, what do you do? You go to the nearest village and the elders of that town are to sacrifice a heifer and to wash their hands in order to rid themselves of all guilt for this death. It is a way of saying we are not responsible for this man's blood. But in the case of Rome versus Jesus, there is no amount of hand washing or hand wringing that can remove the stain of this injustice. In fact, Mark 15, which is Mark's parallel of this scene, has a very haunting line. And Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, handed Jesus over to be crucified. The old King James says, and Pilate wishing to content the crowd. Pilate wishing to placate the crowd. Pilate wishing to appease the crowd. Just handed Jesus over to be crucified. Same old, same old. Political appeasement trumps justice. Same old, same old. I think it was Churchill, Winston Churchill, who said, appeasement is feeding a crocodile hoping he will eat you last. It was Dean Rusk, former attorney general, who said, appeasement only makes the aggressor more aggressive. I don't know about you, but I mentioned at the top of the service, I was actually heart sick on Tuesday night and Wednesday, weren't you, when we received the news of what had happened in Atlanta? This young man, 21 years of age, who was actually a member of a church that was a few blocks down the road from the church that we served in Roswell. He was a member there. He'd been a part of the youth group. He'd been on mission trips to Central America. And all this shooting... It's impossible to me to fathom until you recognize that you cannot possibly serve God and appease our flesh. You can sit on the pew, in the pew, and still placate our own isms 
it is possible sometimes to be in the church and to be out of the Spirit. We cannot serve God and assuage evil. My father used to say, you give the devil an inch, he takes a mile. First Peter 5, 8 says, Satan, like a roaring lion, seeks to devour anyone he can find. We cannot wash our hands of our own stain. We cannot wash our hands of injustice. But there's one other detail worth noting. It's a word spoken towards the conclusion by the crowd, and I warn you, it is disturbing. They say to Pilate, look, may the blood of this man be on us and our kids. In other words, we'll take the rap for this man's death, for this injustice. They're taking responsibility for the cross. And there's a touch of irony here because the blood of Jesus will be upon them, but not as a curse, rather as a cure. Even Jesus will not blame his own injustice on anybody. It is a gift for everybody. And the victim will be even heard praying on the cross for his own victimizers, Abba, they don't know. Father, forgive them. They, they don't, they cannot possibly know what they're doing. The Paschal pardon, Barabbas, telegraphs the meaning of the passion. The sacrifice of this innocent one is going to make sons and daughters of guilty ones. His blood is upon us. The death of Jesus is life for Barabbas and for us. Greater love hath no man than one who lays down his life for his friends. One other word and I'm finished. I was reading recently about a six-year-old boy whose name is Bridger Walker, perhaps you know the story. He and his family live in Wyoming, Cheyenne to be exact, and Bridger, age six, was outdoors playing with his four-year-old sister when he saw trouble coming. A German shepherd mix came charging towards them, and this six-year-old boy instinctively stood between the dog and his sister. He was terribly injured. He received 90 stitches in his face, but after fighting the dog off somehow, he grabbed his sister by the hand and took her to safety. He later would say to his aunt, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me, not her. Chris Evans, better known as Captain America, caught wind of the story. And he sent that little boy a video message and an authentic Captain America shield for his bravery. And he said this in his message, Dear Bridger, I admire your courage and your heart. Real courage isn't about dominating people or fighting against people or walking around like a tough guy. 
Real courage is knowing what is right and doing it even when it ends up hurting you. There's a word for what that kid did, passion. So passionate was he about his sister that he was willing to take the rap so that she might be freed. That little boy's story reminds me of our story. Jesus stood between life and death for us and essentially said, if somebody has to die, let it be me. And his blood is upon us, not as a curse, but as a cure. William Cooper, an English lawyer of another generation, in a situation of deep depression and distress, wrote a hymn whose lyrics still speak of this cure. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what happens when you choose grace over vengeance. That's what happens when I opt for love over hate, mercy over violence, and compassion over conquest. The stain that we cannot remove is removed because his blood is upon us. And that's the gospel. That's the passion. May it be obvious, evident, apparent in you and in me as we walk these days of Lent. In Jesus' name.